Remember back in in Esther chapter 7, we have Esther finally revealing Haman's plot to to King Xerxes. And when when she does, uh, she has this build up to it. She frames the argument perfectly to Xerxes. And then she points the accusatory finger at Haman. Xerxes is enraged. He has to go outside into the garden to gather his thoughts. Then he comes back in and and Haman is falling on Esther's couch, and it looks like he is attempting to assault the queen. And so Xerxes becomes even more furious. And so he says, you know, uh, he has this um, suggestion from one of his, the eunuchs that is in there. He says, hey, there's these gallows over here that, that Haman has constructed for Mordecai, that guy that you honored the day before. Xerxes says, great, hang him on that. And so, at the end of the chapter, Haman is dead. And then I made the the argument that we have a a gospel presentation in the book of Esther at the very end of chapter 7, in the last sentence of the chapter where it says, then the wrath of the king abated. So I explained why, why that's a gospel representation of the wrath of the king being abated. And so that's where we are now. And after the events of the last chapter, our villain is dead. So, all is well, right? Wrong. Esther and Mordecai still have to save the Jews of the kingdom. The author of the edict to kill the Jews has been executed, but the edict itself is still in play. And today in chapter 8, we're going to see how Esther and then Mordecai are given Haman's possessions. We're going to see, again, an example of Xerxes' passive ruling. He's a passive ruler, not a very active one, according to the book. And we're going to see Esther and Mordecai's clever plan to give the Jews a lawful defense mechanism. Mordecai is going to once again bear the royal robes, and at the end, many will want to declare themselves Jews. And once again, brothers and sisters, let's remind ourselves why this is important. God's plan of redemptive history is important. We're on the other side of the established kingdom. Jesus has come. We're on the other side of that. But if we put ourselves in the 5th century B.C., it still is not looking good for the line of the Messiah to be preserved. The Jews still might be annihilated. But God's good providence reigns supreme, so let's read on. Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king 
and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was a gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many peoples from the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So at the beginning of the chapter, Haman's possessions are seized. This was the custom for traders in the Persian Empire. If you were a trader, you immediately forfeited any property or money that you had, and the king could do with it whatever he wished. They, the king gives them to Esther, who in turn passes them on to Mordecai. Included in this, remember Haman has the king's signet ring. He still has it. So Mordecai has very quickly gone from sackcloth and ashes, which we just saw a few chapters ago, Mordecai uh, mourning in sackcloth and ashes, to being a very wealthy man. And at the end of chapter 7, Haman is dead. In our previous chapter, all is well in the kingdom. The villain is gone. The story is over. The line of David is safe. The Messiah has a biological line to enter the world now. Except there's one problem. Persian laws cannot be revoked. It's kind of like trying to repeal a law in the U.S. But they cannot be revoked. Not even by the king. The king cannot even revoke them. So the edict to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews is still the law throughout the entire kingdom of Persia. Esther pleads for the reversal. She comes in, and it looks like she, she's entering into his presence again at the, um, at the cost of her own life, potentially, because it says that he reaches out the golden scepter to her. Remember, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, what that meant. And so she's even risking her life again by going into the king and asking for this other petition. So she pleads for the reversal for this edict for her people. But the king's, the king's hands are tied. And so it's, it's really kind of ironic here because we have on three previous occasions documented here that Xerxes promises to give Esther whatever she wishes. You can have whatever you want up to the half of my kingdom, which is a rhetorical expression, but still, I will give you whatever you want, Esther, except here's this one thing that he can't do. So 
Maybe his, his promise, his uh, hyperbolic promise is just that, hyperbole. Maybe the Persian kings weren't exactly demigods after all, like they are presented. So, Xerxes' solution is to let Esther and Mordecai write whatever they want and to send it out to the entire kingdom. He says, here, you have the signet ring. You just two, two, just go write whatever you want to. Send it out. You have my approval. Xerxes is a very strange ruler. He just pretty much lets other people do whatever they want to in his, in his kingdom. So, Esther and Mordecai come up with a, a pretty clever, clever defensive solution. They compose a counter-decree that would not annul the first decree. The first one cannot be annulled in the kingdom of Persia. But their counter-decree has the potential to avoid the outcome that is designed by the first decree. So it's not going to annul it. It's just designed to annul the outcome of the first decree. The Jews can now take whatever measures necessary to defend themselves to defend themselves, their families, and their property. The decree is sent first to Susa and then throughout the entire kingdom, like all the other decrees have been. And now Mordecai, in the king's royal robes and wearing his crown, dressed as the king again, has turned the Jews' mourning and fasting, which we saw in the previous chapters, into, quote, light and gladness and joy and honor, continuing on a feast and a holiday. At the end of the chapter, we are told of some drive-by, perhaps unmeaningful conversions. We don't really know. Many people now declare themselves Jews. We're going to come back to this point a little bit later. But many people did declare themselves Jews for fears of the, fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So a couple of points I want to bring out from this, from this chapter. The first one being this, this idea of this counter-decree specifically in the context of all scripture, a counter-decree. Oh, how quickly God can turn tears into joy. The Jews of Persia are going to be destroyed. An irrevocable decree has been issued for their destruction. It cannot be undone. The law is immutable. It cannot be changed. But there is a counter-decree. Esther and Mordecai come up with this counter-decree. And last time we were together, we made the observation that that Esther contained an expression of the gospel when the the wrath of the king was abated, when by Haman's just execution. And we have another gospel presentation in this chapter, although not contained in like a a similar just one phrase like in chapter 7. We have another gospel presentation here by the fact that God, who is truly immutable, truly unchangeable, cannot simply revoke the decree of death issued in the Garden of Eden. Can't do it. Instead, he issues a counter-decree of life. Because of the sin of our federal head, Adam, humanity is doomed to the same fate as the Jews of Persia were doomed to. But it's infinitely worse. They only needed to fear the one who could kill the body. The Jews of Persia did. But as Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28... And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so apart from Jesus Christ, we are in far worse shape than the Jews of Susa. Our souls are in peril, dangling over the pit of hell. But the incarnation of the Son of God, the second Adam, the God-man who makes all things new, is that counter-decree that we need to give us life. 
This is the purpose Jesus came for. This is the gospel, right? Jesus, in what might be the most famous passage in all the Bible, says in John three, fifteen through 17, and just to warn you, I hope you're ready with your, your Bible drill today because we're going to be turning to a lot of Scripture. John 3, verses 15 through 17. I shamefully should be able to quote this, but I'm not going to try. I'd probably get pretty close, but I'm not going to. John 3, 15 through 17. That whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the counter decree of life. Jesus is that counter decree of life that God has given us. Our eternal death has been countered by an eternal decree of life. Or over a few chapters more in John 10 verse 10. John 10.10, Jesus again speaking about how he is a good shepherd and how he cares for his sheep. He says, the thief comes only to to steal and kill and destroy. That sounds a lot like what the Jews of Persia were facing, right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus cares for his sheep. He came to give them life. He came to save their lives. And even we get something even better at the end of that verse. We get something way better than just life itself. We get life abundantly. Jesus came for us to have life abundantly. Now this isn't just a temporal term to have infinite life, to have eternal life, to dwell with him. This is the term of fullness. We aren't just saved from death. We have been saved to a life that is united to Jesus, united to the one who put an end to death. Our souls forever nourished by our Savior. So Jesus came for this reason. This is the gospel presentation in Esther again. But there is still work to do on this side of eternity. Even though the counter decree has been issued in Persia, the Jews still must work to defend themselves against any attacks that might come from those seeking to do them harm. And we likewise have a fight on our hands. As we've made the point before, stated many times, the church is the new Israel. And as such, we are agents of God in that war against sin and evil in the world. But our fight is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. So you probably know where I'm going. Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says... In Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even though we are assured of our victory in Christ, and we can be absolutely sure of that, we are still to don the whole armor of God, fighting the good fight for the faith, both against the sin in our own lives and the sins of the dark and evil evil world. So even though the victory has been assured, even though we have the counter decree, we still have to work just like the Jews of Susa had to work. But thank God, just like the Jews of Persia, we have a way to defend ourselves in that same chapter in the next six verses, Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We have the tools for the victory, brothers and sisters. Let us use them. Look at, at Moses' blessing upon Israel when he's about to die. Going back, end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, right before um, we, we get, we're given the information about the death of Moses. This is Moses' final blessing upon Israel. He blesses all of the tribes individually. And then we get something that, that perfectly really describes the end of today's chapter in Esther. So Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Moses' blessing on Israel as a whole. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. That seems to perfectly describe what we just read at the end of chapter 8 of Esther. The pagan peoples of Persia saw the inevitability of the Jewish victory and wished to to convert to save their own hides. The fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And this is the response of so many people that sit in the pews every Sunday. They want to get out of hell free card. They see the gospel only as a means to avoid eternal suffering. And it is that. It is a means to avoid eternal suffering, but the gospel is so much more than that. What did we just read Jesus saying in John chapter 10? Life more abundant. Everlasting joy is attached to the gospel. Communion and rest and worship and dwelling with a God who is more infinitely holy than our stupid little brains can ever imagine. So don't treat God that way. Sure, we do escape God's eternal torment and that's something to celebrate. But when we repent and believe, we do receive so much more than that. And then whenever the city of Susa hears the new counter-decree and sees Mordecai riding through the city on royal robes, they shout and rejoice. So this is not just the Jews of Susa. So the end of the chapter might be a a tad bit confusing because we've got the whole city here shouting and rejoicing for the salvation of the Jews. And then they seem to want to declare themselves Jews just because they're scared of them. But regardless, we do see shouting and rejoicing. And not just among the Jews of Susa, but the pagans as well. They're living there. Shouting for the salvation of the Jews, they want to join them in their joy. So, persecuting the church leads to its growth. It will. Whether it's 5th century B.C. Persia, 2nd century Rome, present day China, or the very near future of America. When God's people are put under the boot of the government, a winnowing fork is applied, the superficial Christians fall away, but the pruning results in a tree that is more fruitful. So when the world sees the church in the midst of persecution rejoicing, they desire to experience this incredible paradoxical joy that they are seeing. Persecuting the church leads to its growth. The believers must be prepared to suffer, but suffer with joy. 
For our Heavenly Father has our reward, and that is the source of our joy, all because of the counter-decree that's been issued for us. So that was the first thing I wanted to draw out. The second thing I want to draw out is the Great Commission in the book of Esther. So we have the gospel. We had the gospel in the book of Esther last time, and we have the gospel in the book of Esther this time. Now, the Great Commission in the book of Esther. And this is where we're going to sing together. So, my probably my favorite Christmas hymn is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. There's you know, so many good Christmas hymns. Hark there, a language saying, Joy to the World. But this, this might, be, might be one of my favorites. I'll pass those around. There's, I think I've got 20 or 19 copies, so if the, the husbands and wives would mind sharing, that'd be, that'd be helpful. So, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, written, written by Charles Wesley, one of the, the greatest hymn writers in the history of the church. And we are going to sing just the first verse. It's two verses. Um, one of the hymnals that we use at home actually has four verses added in the mid-1900s, and the, the two middle verses are actually really good, too. But uh, we're just going to sing the first verse today, and we're going we're gonna sing to sing it right now. Uh, it goes to the tune of uh, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. You know, y'all got that. So, all right, we're going to sing it a cappella. And it'll be fine. I think we're going to do a great job. And I'm going to step back from my microphone just a little bit. So, everybody ready? Come now, long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from. Yeah, it is. It's, it's kind of both. I'm actually going to talk about that right now, Miss Janet. Uh, it's, it's, it's both a, an eschatological song and a, and a Christmas song. Um, so at the beginning of the song, we have a petition for Jesus to come into the world. He, he wrote this, Charles Wesley, as an anachronistic petition, looking back, and then a petition for, for Jesus to make his return. And at the end of the first, at the end of the first verse, I'm sorry, I'm not right, at the... Yeah, the end of the first verse, we get a few unassailable facts about Jesus. He is the joy of every longing heart. He is Israel's strength. He is the desire of all nations, whether they know it or not. And he is the hope of all the earth. At the end of the chapter in Esther, we are told that many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. And I've made points in previous lessons that becoming a member of God's covenant people never had an ethnic requirement, even in the Old Testament. 
Since the beginning of the nation state of Israel, there were those who were brought in not because of some lineage, not because of some genealogy, but because of faith. Two very prominent examples being Rahab the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabite. And as a counterexample, as counterexamples, we see time and time again in the Old Testament of those who were ethnic Israelites that get cut off from God's people and cast out of his presence. So salvation was never only for the Jews. It was and it is for everyone, anyone who responds to the hearing of the good news with repentance and faith. So in addition to the Jews celebrating throughout the kingdom and others becoming Jews, we are told specifically that the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The evidence points to the conclusion that, that most in the kingdom had no animosity towards the Jews in the first place because a few chapters ago, whenever Haman's decree first went throughout the whole city, we are told that Susa was thrown into confusion. They were confused about this decree to kill the Jews. But now we're told that the city rejoices because the Jews can defend themselves. So here we have a completely pagan city and nation celebrating the deliverance of the Jews. The last few verses of the chapter seem to give a perfect narrative description of Psalm 126. So we're going there now. Psalm 126. Psalm 126, the whole psalm. This is one of the the groups of the Song of of Ascent that uh, whenever the the people of Israel would make their ascent to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts, then they would sing these songs on the way, and this is one of them. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like strings in the Negev. Those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The nations, the Gentiles, the pagans of Persia, and many other lands are extolling Yahweh because he has done great things for his people. And the people respond, oh yes, he has. He has done great things for us, his people. We are blessed by him and our hearts are overflowing with joy. We are glad. And so this brings us to the next thing that I said we were going to do that's a little bit different for Sunday school. I'm actually going to play a song now. Uh, This is a song uh, that I had never heard. The school that our kids go to, we do a, a convocation every year at the beginning of school. And they, they send out a, a song for us to learn during the summer, the families to learn, so we all sing it together. The first year we were there, it was Like a River Glorious, which we already knew. But last year they sent us this song, which I'd never heard of before. And it's a, it's a contemporary song. It's called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. And we're going to listen to it now. It's a great song. If you turn over your sheet, if you wanted to actually see the lyrics, they're there. So we're going to listen to that now.
It's a great song. I love that song. It gives a, a great description of some of the promises of God that, that He has given us and what we have to look forward to. And the last verse ends with a prayer. At the very end, bring shalom. You know the word shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Peace, but doesn't just mean an, an absence of violence. It does mean that, but it means more too. It rings of connotation of rest. See, God's ultimate purpose in, in blessing the nations was to bring about the Messiah, remember, who, remember, is the Prince of Peace. He is our ultimate rest. The rebuilding of the earth at the end of the days will be for the purpose of rest for God's people. The Garden of Eden was a place of rest for Adam and Eve before the fall. They worked, but it wasn't toiling work. It was a work of rest. God's presence coincides with rest for his people. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. So why, why was David not allowed to build the temple, even though he was Israel's greatest king? He wasn't actually allowed to build the temple because he was, I mean, even though he was a man after God's own heart and Israel's greatest king, he was a man of war. He was a man that had to subdue the nations around Israel to bring peace so the temple could be constructed. The temple had to be built by someone who wasn't a man of war, who was a man of peace. The land needed rest on all sides before the temple could be built. So Solomon had to build the temple because he was not a man of war. And what happens at the end of the construction of the temple? God's presence was there. His glory resided in the temple. The presence of the Heavenly Father and peaceful rest go hand in hand. The land had rest during that time too. And this was the purpose all throughout the Old Testament. Israel was meant to be the conduit through which God would bless the nations. Once the Messiah comes, all nations will be blessed through him. But until then, Israel and Israel's king, through their worship of the one true God, were supposed to bless the nations by drawing them into true worship. So let me give you a quick tip for reading some of the Psalms. In a lot of the Psalms, you're going to see the word nations or peoples or the earth referred to. And when we see this, we should be reminded that God's Old Testament church was meant to bless everyone around them by pointing them to Yahweh. Not just subduing their lands, but subduing their lands to point them to Yahweh, to true, to true worship. And so the Psalms are, in a lot of cases, are very universal in scope. I'm going to go to a few examples. I'm about to hit y'all with a lot of scripture here, not just in Psalms. But um, Psalm 117, the whole thing, it says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 66, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They pass over... The river on foot, there did we rejoice with them, who rules by his might forever, whose eye keeps watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And then in the most explicit one, Psalm 67, the whole 
Psalm 7 verses, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. That harkens back to the blessing of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. That your way may be known on, all, on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And this is true not just in the Psalms, but in the prophets as well. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 5. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God and Jacob, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A beautiful metaphor for peace there, by the way. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And over in Isaiah 61, 61 verse 11. Isaiah 61, 11. For as the earth bring forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Ezekiel 36, not to steal any of Hal's thunder that he's going to get to in, I don't know, a year from now maybe, at the pace he's going. Hal's not in here, but we love you, Hal. Keep going slow, man. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Read verses 16 through 36. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which with they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of the land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And all the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I was going to read through verse 36, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead. uh, Because there's some other verses that I I need to get to. Uh, Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declared the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations, this sounds just like Esther, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and, be, and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And then most explicitly in Daniel chapter 7, an eschatological couple of verses. This is chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is Daniel talking about the end times. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient, ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so I was going to go through, but for the sake of time, the commands and prophecies of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. You can go look these up yourself. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Great Commission, well-known passage. Mark thirteen ten. Jesus talking about the end times. And then I do want to go to, to Revelation 21 very quickly. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So don't you see it? It was never God's design that the old covenant Israel was to hold on to the worship of Yahweh for themselves. They were to spread the joy of worship throughout all of the nations. The same goes for God's new covenant, Israel, the church. We are to spread the joy of worship throughout the nations. Church, we are here to bless the nations, to bless the pagans around us by proclaiming the gospel of forgiveness of sins and showing the world that we are enjoying the blessed rest of God. We have an obligation to show the world that the Lord is with us. Um, I'm going to go back over to Zechariah really quick. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Right before verse 20. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples... And strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, that sounds like Esther too, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God has given us the same type of promise through the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 
verses 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and sealed on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with it a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look it up. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So I'm going to pause here. John is expecting to turn and to see Jesus in his might and splendor as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But look what John turns and sees. And in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Expecting to see a lion, he sees a slain lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Brothers and sisters, let us leave here today blessing the nations by lifting them up to our Father in prayer supporting the missionaries laboring overseas and spiritually ministering to the pagans in our own community. But first, we are here to worship this lamb that was slain. So let us go now with all the creatures as John describes at the end of this chapter, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.